hubbub, a chaotic din caused by a crowd of people. Hello and welcome back to the podcast for Hubbub, for the Directors Hub Founders Support Club. We are on episode three and today we have our guest with us, which is Robert Carpenter of Management Inspirations and he'll be talking to us about exit strategies. Welcome, Robert. Thank you. Nice to be here. Nice to see you, Robert. How's it, how's it going? It's going very well. Been very busy. Good to be here. And it's great to be able to talk to you both. Well, perhaps you could tell us a bit about your business to start with and what you do. Well, my business is interesting in the sense that I, what I set it up to do and what I currently do are two completely different things. I set my business up in 2004, Management Inspirations, Having previously been finance director of a number of large companies in London, I thought I got to 40, hated travelling to London by that point, and decided I set up my own business to help people run their businesses and basically be a part-time finance director. And that was great, and it continued like that for about a year. And gradually it morphed into other areas, and I had people saying to me, could you help me raise money? Could you do a business plan for banks? Could you help me to... uh, Uh, gain more business by uh, contacting additional people and additional businesses for my business, which I did. And at one point, somebody came to me and said, "Um, I'm having a problem selling my business and uh, the agency I'm using don't seem to be doing a good job. Is there anything you can do to help? She was a friend of mine and I said, oh, yes, I can. I can't cut across the agency, but I could find potential buyers for your business which I did, and we found a buyer, and it went back to that agency. That agency then contacted me and said, oh, we've got other businesses we can't sell, can you help? And I got involved in that. And then today, and partly because of COVID, it's become my sole or primary part of my business, which is now I value and sell businesses, and that's what I do for a living. So Management Inspirations does that, does very little of the other things I originally did. So you kind of morphed into this, as you say, selling businesses thing. How yeah. did COVID affect that then? What 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 made the what? Well, the two things that that helped with that were, it, from a business perspective, one was, I've always worked from home since I set up my business, but throughout all the consultancy work, and I did do recruitment as well, um, because my dad used to have a recruitment business. I used to have to go to clients a lot. I used to have to go to their place of work and help them at their place of work. But um, when COVID started, obviously, we weren't able to do that. The other thing with selling businesses, I always made a point of the fact that I would go and visit the business um, as I felt it was important to meet the people, see the business and see how it works. During COVID, and I don't know how, people started contacting me from all over the country. I mean, that sounds a bit of a a grand (laughs) thing to say, but I got contacted from a business in Manchester, one in Bristol, uh, one in Norfolk, and places like that. And I, th- and I said, well, obviously during COVID, I can't come and visit you anyway. Yeah. Uh, and I learned a process of how to value and manage businesses without actually going to see them. And people seemed happy with that. And as a consequence, I now sell businesses all over the UK. I mean, I've just completed on one in Scotland. And none of it has come out of advertising. Yeah. It's all come out of recommendation by strange connections. And a lot of it is... I'm in a face, not me, but um, somebody will say I'm on a Facebook group and they'll say, do you know anyone who values and sells businesses? And somebody will kindly say, yes, Robert Carpenter. And as a consequence, uh, 
I'm being recommended to somebody in Scotland, as an example. So you've gained quite a reputation for doing these things. I um, have. And, I, and I, as I say, it's almost slightly weird because I sort of think I'm just a one-man band. You know, there's lots of national brands that do what I do. Yeah. Uh, and strangely enough, again, I like saying strangely enough. Strangely enough, again, <laughs> uh, the, the, uh, the national brand that I was helping about 10 years ago because they were struggling with something was bought out by somebody else who's now had to close it because the national brand is unsuccessful. And he even came to me to say, I've got a business that needs selling. Can you sell the business? Because I happen to know the person who's bought that brand, and that's disappeared now. That's gone into liquidation. So the only difference that I offer, and I'm, I'm very happy to push that, is I understand business because I've worked in yeah. business for years. I'm not a salesman. I'm a businessman that sells businesses. Yeah. And I believe that to be fundamentally different from a lot of the bigger brands who are basically putting salespeople who don't understand, one, how to value a business, and secondly, the process of business. Yeah. So going back to the sort of early days, mm -hmm. you said uh, you were in finance before. Was that, was that what you've done right from the very start of your career? Was yes, yeah. My, my dad was a chartered accountant and did everything possible to persuade me not to become a chartered accountant. <laughs> I was just mentioning that in the, uh, the building we're in now, which is obviously new, but is connected to what is, uh, or next door to what is University of Brighton. When I was 18, it was Brighton Polytechnic. Yeah. And I came here to do a degree in accounting and finance. And the first year was called a foundation course, which I did pass. And in those days, you didn't need a degree to become a chartered accountant. I then did the second year, failed it. I then retook it in the summer and failed it. And then I did the whole year again and failed it. And they... <laughs> the principal or whatever it was here said for goodness sakes don't ever become an accountant <laughs> you obviously don't have what it takes about five years later I qualified as a chartered accountant and I came back and unfortunately he'd retired so I wasn't able to come Damn. in and say you were wrong I am a chartered accountant I, I qualified as a chartered accountant in 1991 but had no intention of staying in what they call the profession the accountancy world of you know doing day-to-day -day accounts um, so I got a job uh, as what was titled Chief Accountant um, for a company in London that was in the media industry. Uh, it's now called Financial Controller by most places, but in those days it was called Chief Accountant. And two years later, and it's my biggest claim to success, if I want to call it that, I was 29 and I was made Finance Director of one of the subsidiaries that had a staff of 500 and that was the moment I thought, I've made it. I'm now finance director. You know, by the time I'm 40, I will be chairman of ICI uh, and my life will be made. And it did continue in a positive way. There were a number of subsidiaries. They then decided to make one finance director of all the subsidiaries. And that was me. And I was really thrilled by that. And the strangest thing was one of the finance directors stayed in the business who used to be my boss I was now his boss. So that is always when they say, be nice to the people on the way up because you never know, you might meet them on the way down. <laughs> um, that was also my first experience of selling businesses. Right. One of the subsidiaries we sold to, I think, the Mirror Group. Um, and I was involved from beginning to end in that process. And it taught me on a very high level all the aspects of selling a business. Uh, and I thoroughly enjoyed that. I, it was part of the Press Association, 
and I was employed directly by the press association. So they sold one of their main subsidiaries, then they were selling the second one. And I was asked to stay on as managing director of one of those companies. And I said, you know, it's time for me to have a change now. I just got the feeling that I was there just to be milked for my knowledge and then they'd remove me. I just got yeah. that feeling. So I then went to work as finance director for uh, part of Abbott Mead Vickers AMV BBDO, which at the time was the biggest advertising agency in the country, did the famous uh, Guinness commercial of horses jumping over waves. I remember that. It was that. the first yeah. million pound Brilliant. commercial. Anyway, um, and I was again finance director of I think it was five of their uh, subsidiaries. And uh, I stayed there and in my 20s, I just loved going to London. Couldn't wait to get on the train. I actually, I remember being on a Sunday going, I can't wait to go to work tomorrow. Got to 40 and thought, I'm going to not survive if I do the hours I'm doing. I was catching the 6.28 every morning, getting home at gone midnight, having four hours sleep, having my supper, four hours sleep and going to London again. And I just got to the point of going, I don't want to do this anymore. But I actually wanted to be my own boss. My grandfather had been his own boss. Admittedly, it was a grocery store, so slightly different to what I do. But my dad had been his own boss, had his own recruitment consultancy um, since 1973 until he retired in 2002, called P&C Recruitment. No, called uh, Phillips and Carpenter. And I decided to set up a recruitment brand called P&C Recruitment. Mm. And I own his brand because I didn't want to lose it. Um, and so I'd, it always been in my blood to have my own business. But as I say, and that's where we get to where I um, started in 2004. So that's so as a result of wanting sort of a bit of a lifestyle change, you I wanted changed a life, your, your yeah. business. I wanted well. a lifestyle change, but I also felt that having worked in bigger business, you could help smaller businesses. Yeah, I don't believe it's easy to do it the other way round because as a, but in a sense that the processes of running a business that's thirty million pound turnover to one that's thirty thousand pound turnover. The principles are exactly the same. Yeah. You've just got to do them on a smaller scale and also be aware that it's personal. So now you work with businesses, helping them to basically sell their business and come up with an exit strategy. Yes. So um, when, when businesses contact you, are they, do they have an exit strategy in place or do they sort of have this idea in their heads that they want to sell with not much behind it and you have to help them out basically I, I, that, that's a very generous way of putting yeah. it yes I mean it, it's uh, most people phone me with sort of a, a panic strategy strategy that's um, I think I want to sell my business well are you ready to sell your bit uh, uh, I don't know how, how much do you think it's worth I don't know so I said you know so I would go through this process I mean the ideal just to wind back a bit is to say to prepare to sell your business as you say, they should have a strategy to sell their business. Uh, I actually advocate the fact that every five to ten years, everybody should get a valuation of their business if it's, they're intending to sell it at some point. Because you get to the point of wanting to sell your business, and to be honest, 99% of people, it's a shock what their business is worth. It could be a shock positive as much as it could be negative, but mostly it's negative because people seem to have this grandioso idea. I've been turning over 20,000 a year, you know, probably worth 1.5 million now. So <laughs> it, it's that sort of strange um, mindset, I suppose. But that's why I often say to people, so you can also plan. It's also part of your retirement process if, it's, if you're going to sell it at retirement is knowing how much your business is worth. It could be, apart from your home, and possibly more than your home, the biggest asset you have. 
and people don't have an idea. So that's one thing I always say to people if they're thinking ahead is, and I've actually done that for a number of people recently. The other thing is, is try to sell a business while it's being successful. You know, a lot of people do come to me and they go, oh, a few years ago it was doing brilliantly and I'm going, well, I can mention it. And it's a great piece of information, but people will want to know why isn't it doing that now? People fall out of love with their businesses. It happens all the time. But if you've fallen out of love, sell it now. Don't sort of go, I've fallen out of love with it and I want to hate it for a while and then I'll sell it. <laughs> it doesn't work like that because that will come across in the sales process, but it also comes across in the results. COVID was very strange in that process, but I always value businesses based on five years. Take a couple of years prior to COVID yeah. and the current period. And if you're achieving now what you were achieving before COVID, COVID is an irrelevance. Yeah. Um, so, but it's important to do that. But yes, it is the biggest problem is people do not plan to sell their businesses on the whole. I you, sorry. Go on. I was going to say, do people... Um, do they tend to look to get a val an evaluation when they're actually looking to close the, or sell the business towards the end of that process? Or do they do it a lot earlier? Very, very seldom do I get somebody to do it earlier. When I, it's the first time I've contacted them, or they've contacted me rather, um, is usually the first time they're thinking of getting a valuation. And I've actually yesterday spoke to somebody who said... I've got to sell my business. It's not going how I want it to be. I said, have you an idea how much it's worth? Absolutely no idea whatsoever. I said, if you, you know, can you send me? So he sent me a load of information. So I will be doing a valuation. But I do formal report valuations. I do valuations where I provide a report. And I value on four or five different bases because unlike property, for instance, where you can say, well, the one down the road is worth 200,000. So this must be worth about 200,000. Everything, if you had six hair salons in a row, they'd all be worth a different amount because of what services they offer, how many hours they open, how many people work there, etc., and therefore how much they make as a profit and turnover. So it's important that if people, I'd love it if people came to me and said, I'm thinking of selling next year, can you tell me now what it's worth? And then we'll talk again next year. And that would be great because all I'd want to be able to say to people is, because they often say, what do I need to do to get it ready? And I then can go through and say, well, this would be beneficial. I've always made a statement saying every business has value, even if it's a one-person business. But obviously, it has greater value if you started to put in place the process that if you move from the business, you're no longer involved in the business in the same way. If you're fundamental to the business, it just means the handover period is much longer and potentially the price might be lower. But um, if people can plan to sell their businesses, and I'm very happy to help them do that at no charge um, to, to do that planning on the basis I'd like to believe they'll come to me to do the selling. So that's one of the biggest things, I guess, is getting people in an ideal world to start planning to, as well, the same way you do a business plan or a marketing plan to do a business exit plan yeah, at some point as well. Absolutely. I mean, the biggest problem you get with people when they start their business, those that fail are usually ones that didn't plan to start their business. So if you if you, those that <laughs> plan to start their business yeah. usually are successful businesses or at least can cope with the, the initial period yeah. when things are very quiet. They've actually got it set out. And exactly the same should happen when they're selling. It, it's really sort of about, in about three years, I mean, I often say if you can plan five years, it's great. But three years is really the length of time to sort of go, right, 
I'm using retirement. I mean, there are obviously exceptions. You know, I've got people, you know, a serious illness comes in, you've got to make decisions. That's that's the way it is. I've had people, you know, that for, for their own reasons have got to go abroad or what have you. The, these are different factors. But if you're planning to sell either retirement or because you've got another career you want to follow and you've got a, you know, an age you want to do that, three years is, is basically a good length of time to do it. You can do it shorter, but you've got to be able to react quickly to what you've got to do. Another example is people who come to me and say, oh, my lease is going to end um, in eight, mo- eight months' time. And I go, well, there's no business to sell unless you're prepared to renew the lease. Because I actually once, and it wasn't my business I was selling, saw somebody who didn't buy the business because they said, well, I'll wait till the lease runs out. They won't renew it, and I'll start the same business that they had at the premises by speaking to the landlord and paying nothing for the business. <laughs> so, again... When I say about a period of time, it's also having at least two years left on your lease so that there is an ongoing yeah. business. It's little things like that that people go, well, the lease is running out, so I thought it was a good time to sell. And it's sort of not a good time to sell. Yes, you don't want to sell it when it's got 25 years left on the lease, maybe. That would be difficult. But, you know, five, three to five yeah. years is, is good, and two years is really the bare minimum. And anything less than that, you need to have in place that you can at least agree with your landlord that you've got a rolling lease afterwards these are fantastic nuggets of information they really are because people they don't think about the these types of aspects within their business infrastructure they tend to leave things as you've said already already that they tend to leave things to the last minute and that just opens up a whole can of worms for lots of different issues that could potentially befall that company then absolutely i mean the, the 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 process of selling a business the offer is obviously fundamental we have to agree a price but then you have a period called due diligence and during that period those factors that maybe you didn't want to come to light will come to light and there is an obligation on the seller to provide all information it's a sort of legal obligation you can't sort of say well they never asked for it so I didn't tell them if it's fund if it's you know part of the process you can't this is why when you sell a business there's warranties in the agreement because if I sell my business and I've got a legal case going on and I don't mention it they'll want a warranty that if that legal case comes to does happen and they find out about it I'm still liable for that legal case so it, it you can't get away from your problems and so therefore if you've got a problem it's better to resolve it before you sell, try and sell the business because it'll only come back and bite you and more than likely the person buying it will pull out of the deal and it'll all have been a waste of time. Uh, and it's the worst thing is when I suddenly find, and I didn't, you know, that I'm saying to them, get this sorted out. But if it's a situation where they don't even tell me and I actually get to the point of going, well, that's good. Funnily enough, they phoned up and said <laughs> they've just discovered that you haven't paid your rent for the last 20 years. And they're going, oh, didn't I mention that to you? And I go, <laughs> no, you didn't. So, you know, we've got a bit of an issue here. So it, it's that sort of thing that that is important and why preparing your business for sale is sometimes just cleaning it up it's making sure that if you've got outstanding issues there is if say you do owe money to the landlord because you didn't pay it during covid that you've agreed no there's not a problem in the sale proceeds that proportion will go to the landlord so the landlord won't have an issue and so it's tidying it up but not necessarily paying it off it's just resolving the issue so have you had that issue come up before where you've had uh, some big problems crop up? Yes, I have. Strangely enough, there was one about rent and uh, the uh, uh, the bar- purchasers came to me and said, there's an arrears of rent. And 
I wasn't aware there was an arrears yeah. of rent, but I knew that the landlord had decided to do a rent review because it should have been done two years earlier and done it, but was backdating it. So I reacted by saying, no, no, there's not an arrears of rent. What there is is there will be this rent that needs paying yeah. because of this backdated stuff. I spoke to the person selling and she said, oh, yes, I actually am in arrears. I've got £8,000 I haven't paid. It was in COVID and I've, and I've agreed to pay it off a little £100 a month. And I go... Why didn't I know this? She said, I didn't know it was important. And I said, well, it's sort of fundamental. But I said, I seem to have calmed the situation, but you will pay it off. Oh, no, I will pay it off as part of the sale proceeds. I said, OK, well, that's all right. But I, I said, I've in, in a sense, not lied, but I've only given half the picture because yeah. that was the only bit of the picture I knew. It's, so, yes, they, they do come up now and again, sadly. It's very interesting to to, to talk to you, uh, Robert, because it, it, you're, you're such a. There's so many myriads of. There's so much information that's rattling around in, inside you. We could probably be here all day, to be honest. Um, I was. I, I think it's absolutely astonishing um, uh, what people have to go through in their day-to-day business as it is, yeah. without then having to think about. Oh yes. What do I do when I sell the business? Do I just close it? Do I dissolve it? Or uh, oh, you know what? I, I might sell it. Yes. You know. So it, it's really interesting to hear about the process and the due diligence that you have to go through um, to get yourself to that stage. Are there any kind of? I'm not saying a kind of problem clients <laughs> as such, but are there any kind of? Um, big sales that you've had that you felt you know what I've achieved something amazing with this one. Yes, there, there have been a, a few where they've actually not gone to plan because nothing ever goes to plan. If that, that's the trouble because of these surprises that come up. But I have had some very big businesses um, that I've I've sold, and they've managed to almost stumble over the the uh, the finish line. The, the one thing I would say quickly is. Whereas when you sell a house, there's an exchange of contracts, then there's a completion. So you get this moment a week or two beforehand where you can sort of go, it's fine, it's going to go ahead, which I obviously I don't get involved in any of that. But with selling a business, it all happens on the final day. So you can have people, it's almost like the day before, saying, do you know, I've had to think about this, I've changed my <laughs> mind. So, um, yeah, it, it's, it's, it's very nerve-wracking to the very last minute. But, yes, I have. I've, I've just taken on a business which... If I sell it, I can retire on the proceeds of selling it because um, it, it's in a, it's a seven-figure sale process. Not for me, but the process is, and because I take a percentage of it, it's the biggest business I will have ever sold. I've sold a wow. business for um, for a million pounds, but because it had a freehold with it, I charge a lower percentage, so it, it doesn't. It was still a lovely income. Most of my businesses I sell are, but probably one hundred fifty thousand pound and less, and. It's great because they're they're people who have their own business. They may have a few staff, and they uh, and they you know it's been their business for many many years, and it's lovely to be able to get them a solution to it. Uh, and so yes, I mean most of the businesses I sell are smaller, but I, I do get these one or two. I've got one going through at the moment, um, which will uh, supposed to complete at the end of this month and will give me a nice fee. But I had another one of the similar guy, and the guy pulled out. So the buyer was buying. He said, "I can't raise the money." And so I'm pulling out the deal. So it, it's as good as it's bad, but there are more goods than bad. So yeah. that's the important thing. 
So if you had to give someone a sort of step-by-step to prepare for what they want to do if they sell their business, what what would you recommend that they they do? I I know it sounds a bit... um uh, a bit sort of banging my own drum but I would actually say if you've suddenly got to the point where you're thinking I will be planning speak to somebody like me speak to somebody and, and I say somebody like me as opposed to somebody who's going to say put it on now we'll, you know, uh, speak to somebody like me to talk about that process there is because every business is unique yeah. and that's the worrying thing I have written out before now steps of the process of selling a business um, but it does worry me that it's almost a bit too clinical yeah. and depending on the business whether there are certain things that should be done that other business don't need to do yeah. and I just think speak to somebody like me at the earliest possible opportunity and understand the process because again if you run your business well then it, it's more prepared for sale it, it's often people who are very chaotic in the way they run their business and therefore buying being being chaotic they're not ready to sell their business so a good a well-run business a profitable business and somebody who just uh, is organizing everything yeah. that they do normally is probably well prepared for selling although there are aspects like I mentioned the lease and things like that that you should be aware of but there is a step to step by step plan which I have put together but I I wouldn't like to sort of project it as being it's definitive and that's the end yeah. of the matter. But it is basically the process of get a valuation first, determine that it's what you want to sell it for. Um, and the other thing is, as people say to me, but I want more money for it. Well, then I can talk to them about what they need to do with their business using my consultancy head of getting in a better position to sell it for a higher price. That is, again, why I say to people, value it earlier yeah. because you may need to get more money. Should people, um, as you're talking about the valuation process, should should they value it earlier or later uh, within their business or is it defined by the type of industry they're in? There's no right or wrong time. As I say, I would always suggest to people, if, if it's a long-term business, probably not bothering to get it valued for at least 10 years is is no harm at all. But I often say it's getting it valued. If the value is going in the direction or is it where you think it's, it is anyway because you've got a good grasp on these things, then you can have it valued less frequently. But for people who have absolutely no idea of what their business could be worth, I often say, you know, maybe wait 10 years if it's going to be a long term. But once every five years is no harm. Um, and I charge a very flat fixed fee of £300 for doing it. Uh, to provide an actual report and therefore you've got something where it also compares other businesses in your industry and what they're selling for and other areas so it gives you a good idea of where you're going because as I say the worst thing is going I need to sell and going well I'm afraid it's worth 20,000 and they think it's worth 80,000 and and I'm explaining to them why it isn't and of course the worst thing is with some some, and I'm not here to uh, disparage all competitors but there are one or two I'm aware of that will almost value it whatever you want it to be because they'll charge you something like two and a half thousand pounds up front to put it on the market and if I could do that I wouldn't bother to sell a single business I'd just take as many businesses as possible charge two and a half thousand pounds and happily walk away and never sell a business but they do they charge an enormous amount of money to put it on the market so they don't care really if they sell it or not 
there are a lot of good players in my market, but there are just one or two that are infamous for overvaluing. And it happens, you know, it happens in the estate agency world as well. The worst thing is that they've spoken to somebody like that who's told them, yeah, it's worth £150,000. They then come to me and I say, well, it's worth 40000 And I show them why it's worth 40000 And they go, but they told me. It and at the end of it, I go, look, if you feel comfortable with them, go with them. But I have to say, I think it'll sit on the market for a very long time. Do you find that um, um, the, the value proposition kind of comes into um, the, the selling of a business or the buying of a business? Because it, as you've said, that you've alluded to just there, that it isn't just about the assets within the business. There's also the value process yeah. of I mean, what is sitting behind that business. I mean, the, the, big, the word that's used is goodwill and brand. Those are the two words. Um, the assets are, are important, but the assets are just included. Mm. Unless you're the only time I've ever been involved in, in valuing a business where the assets were almost the biggest part was someone asked me to value a crane business and these huge cranes. And of course, the value of those cranes were far greater than the value of any goodwill or anything else. Um, but 99% of businesses, the assets of the business, the actual sort of what's used in the business, are just part of the business. Mm. You couldn't run the business without them. It's people who say to me, but I want to keep the van and everything. But I said, do you need the van to do the business? And they go, yes. Well, I said, well, if, then it's going to greatly reduce the value of the business. Um, so, And it's branded, so you'd rather sort of support the whole thing, really. Um, I did have one hairdresser once said, but can I keep all the clients? And I'm going, well, hold on a minute. What am I selling then? I am just selling the furniture because the clients yeah. are the brand. So you do get those sorts of things. But, yes, it, it's the, the valuation of a business is primarily based on profitability, it's primarily based on the net profit, which is adjusted, and that's where my skills as a chartered accountant come in. And then it's multiplied by an industry factor, and that's, again, my knowledge of the, of the process, because every business type has a different industry factor. And that's how you get to a valuation. But then, as I say, I use comparatives as well. Sorry, I'm enjoying that tuna melt a bit too much um <laughs> and it, it is based on all of that and the big problem i have is people who say but i want to put it on for this this price i will say to people if it's within an acceptable margin i said you need to be aware what i say the value of this in the business is it's not finite obviously it's still uh, a view i'm happy to put it on at this higher price because i know it's not too high but I need you to be aware that if I'm just getting no interest because of the price, that's the reason. Mm. The, I won't put on a business if people go, go, well, I want three times that amount of money. I'll just say, look, I, I, I can't justify that. And to be fair, I get a number of people who will come to me and who are looking at businesses and go, well, how did that valuation get done? I want to feel comfortable that I can justify my valuation for the business. So it, it's, a, it's a twofold thing. The only time I have a difficulty, and it's not me, it's the process. If somebody's got a very new business, but they've got a phenomenal brand or product mm. that hasn't properly developed... I often say to people, let's put it on offers invited. Let's not put a price on it because it's almost selling trademark, a pro, a pos, uh, uh, an opportunity for somebody. Mm. It needs investment, but it's all you, you've done all the groundwork. So it's a recipe. They've come up with the recipe. They've come up with yeah. the product. They've got, they've got the packaging. They've got everything set up, but they haven't sold a lot yet, but they've already put it. It's gone into Waitrose. Um, you know, the starting process is there. Yeah but they need another £200,000 to make it work, and they haven't got that, so they're happy to sell yeah. it. Um, so I often do it on that basis. It's it's really, really engaging, and, and I had 
I had no I, I, I had an indication of what you did uh, within the director's hub but I didn't actually know the full extent of what you actually did and it was very funny that you, that you said earlier that um, you know that you didn't really pass those ex- no. those early exams to be a chartered accountant <laughs> and then passed and then you obviously you know and that's what you now do so you must have faced lots of challenges over the years so what's the biggest challenge you're facing in your role and business right now the biggest challenge is is time management um, it's I, I have a business, unfortunately, which is very reactionary. Uh, obviously, it's a lot of proactive work I do, but it's very reactionary in the sense that people will send me emails about offers or wanting to go and view somewhere or uh, talk to, meet, meet the, the owners of the business or get some accounts information. And unfortunately, in my business, um, delay is not a good factor. Uh, and my problem with time management is, is learning, it's not actually, is learning to say, right, I have ended the day. I mustn't continue yeah. and try and get, try and get this done now. I'm, I'm being better organised in the things that I do have control over. When I worked in London, I was an absolute advocate of time management. I had it down to, I was very much in control of my time. And uh, and because I had a team of people, I, I organised it with that team and made sure that everyone knew what they were doing. I would have regarded myself as a good delegator, not an abdicator. Um, but working on my own, I've often talked about the fact of should I get in a virtual PA? Yeah. Or, and there's very, very small elements of what my business does that I could give to somebody yeah. else to do. Um, and still then, it doesn't... Take it away. All they do, all they'd be doing, is responding to a request for information and sending that information. If that person then comes back again and wants the the accounts or explanations for things, it still involves me. Um, so it's it, it sort of it, it's not like that's the bulk of the admin work. It's a difficult one, and I mean, I'm going on holiday in six weeks' time to uh, Sardinia, but I'll be taking a laptop with me because I need to be able to. Respond, but what I've agreed with my wife is, I will set one hour aside before we go to supper, do yeah. everything, but only respond to those things that have to be responded to. But at least I can do it. But it also takes away otherwise my, the whole my, my my brain will be just not relaxing. Do you find it hard to switch off then from work? I do. I promise. I really enjoy what I do, and that's nearly a, a negative because I enjoy it so much. I don't want to stop yeah. doing it. I've talked about, I tell you, I'm going to be 60 next year. I talked about retiring at 55. And since I got to 55, my work's got busier and busier and busier. Um, but I actually, again, spoke speaking to my wife and saying about retiring. And I said, well, I don't really have hobbies. I don't garden, really. Um, I like playing squash, but I couldn't play that 24-7. Um, I actually enjoy what I do. It's almost could turn it into a hobby. But I don't know. I love, I love, playing around with shares and things I, I like yeah. buying and selling shares but I, I don't know I've, I'm I've got back problems so I can't do all the sports I used to enjoy doing and so therefore I, I should probably enjoy my grandchildren which I love yeah. playing with my grandchildren but I, I enjoy my work that's my problem I don't I'm not a good switch off person although I do stop and sit down and have supper and after that point I don't do anything well, maybe at some stage we just sit down and talk about that because yes. um, I do a four-day week. You do. And I, do, I have Fridays off as a wellness day. And funnily enough, 
I'm actually reading this book at the moment and it's just the irony is just I can't not say anything about it. I'm reading 4,000 Weeks. You may have heard of it. It's by Oliver Berkman and it's called Time Management for Mortals. <laughs> now, you couldn't have timed that better, could Absolutely. you? Absolutely. And well, time management comes up all the time, uh, ironically, uh, within all of our businesses. It is. It's, and it's one of the single biggest fundamental issues that we face as business owners. Well, it just doesn't matter what you do, whether you, you make something, yeah. you've got a plan your time for it if it takes I mean just coming to this coming to this appointment I thought well I've got to leave at this time because I've got to go it's managing your time to do things you've got to do I'm much better if I'm taken away from work one of the things I love about the director's hub is although if I sat down and thought about it I haven't got time to go to director's hub but I do want to go because one I enjoy it and I think it's absolutely fantastic but secondly I love the fact that it takes me away from work for a couple of hours every so often once a month at least and that is important to me but I'm not very good Uh, there's a there's a, a friend of ours Gary, who's in the group, and he, he always says to me, I stop work at one and don't work again until two every day. I stop for lunch. I not, I'm not good at that sort of thing. I, everyone has their weaknesses. My weakness is, well, while I'm doing that, I could just read the other emails. I could just, yeah. and, and yes, and then I don't sleep well, and then I, I blame it on the cat, and we haven't even got one. So, I mean, it, so it, it's difficult on that basis. So, Yes, it's one. It is one of my weak. The one thing I loved about working in London, if there ever was one thing I loved about working, it was getting on the train to go to London. And when I got on the train to go home, I had an hour to turn my brain off. And yeah. when I got home, I couldn't do any. I never brought any work home. Yeah. Um, I just like to point out that I think. Uh, I think our Sonny does work on the weekend sometimes, though, even if he has Friday off. Occasionally, but we won't <laughs> go into that. We're not here for that. Um, We've delved into uh, your business and uh, what you've kind of done over the last few years. Um, What do you do in your spare time? Well, it's interesting you say that because I did say I don't have a lot of hobbies, but Mm -hmm. one of my infamous hobbies, as we know, is I love playing Dame in Panto. No. I do do a lot of, uh, I do less of what I used to do. I used to do a lot of musicals. (laughs) I used to perform in musicals all the time. And again, I... I've got to an age where I got a bit bored with rehearsals. What I'd like to do is just be told, right, we're doing, I don't know, Moulin Rouge. Can you turn up and we'll perform it on Sunday? I don't know it, but I don't know. But, but, um, I'd, but with pantomime, panto, I do get the chance that all the rehearsals are such fun as well because yeah. of the way it works. I love playing Dame in panto. My daughters were always in panto. And I always said that if I ever did it, I would only do it if I played the Dame. And the opportunity came, I did it with a couple of other societies, and the opportunity came up in the local Burgess Hill one. And the lady who runs it, Susie, um, is very um, f- very supportive and faithful to people that are in the team. But the guy who'd been, <clears throat> been playing the Dame for 15 years decided to retire. It came up, I auditioned, and I've been doing it for the last four or five years now. Amazing. And she, she's happy to have me do it. And the other thing, of course, I do is at Christmas... I will. Uh, be, I will Famous be. Father Christmas. I will be Father Christmas at any of. I mainly do. To be fair, I mainly do it at schools, um, and I love doing it at, uh, at schools. Um, the last year, I did one at a school where they said uh, I'd done it. I'd done it a couple of years previously, or whenever COVID had allowed, and I probably saw about forty children. They decided this time it was a primary school. 
and absolutely every child in the school was going to come and see Father Christmas in their class groups. So I think I saw 150 children, and every time they came in, I had to keep this chirpy Father Christmas going. And there's always somebody who says they didn't believe in Father Christmas as they were getting a bit older, and everyone had a present, and I would go, well, obviously you don't want a present, so that's lovely. And amazing how they all became believers in Father Christmas. Having fans. And uh, it was to be honest, it's a lovely process, but it... if ever, I mean, even being Dame, you have to think on your feet. But if ever you have to think on your feet, it's with children and being Father Christmas and come up with I an answer imagine, for absolutely yeah. every bizarre question you get asked about your wearing your reindeer and everything else. <laughs> so, um, I, but I love it. I, maybe I just love dressing up. I don't know what it is. But it, it, it is. The one thing I do love more than anything else is being not my day-to-day person. Yeah. I love, that's what I loved about doing musicals as well. I just loved um, uh being a character. Yeah, it's quite a contrast to uh, your original role of chartered accountant yes. and business advisor. <laughs> I know. And being but a people, dame with glitter and makeup and uh, yeah, people have often Brilliant. said, you know, I, I've often, well, I've often said I'm trying to break this mould of chartered accountants. <laughs> and um, there's a famous uh, Monty Python uh, sketch where I think it's Michael Palin comes in with horn-rimmed glasses with his briefcase and comes in and sits in there with a being interviewed by uh, John Cleese and he says uh, what is it you want to do and he says I want to be a lion tamer and he says uh, what do you currently do I said I'm a chartered accountant Uh, and but the whole thing is about you are the most boring person in the whole of the world (laughs) being a chartered accountant and it to be honest it took about 20 years for people to stop talking about this as chartered accountants are like uh, but like this character from Monty Python but yes, I just feel that um, I'm very good with numbers. I, I love, I'm a very logical person I, in the sense of how I work. I love things to be to be working out right. And I, I have one client who I do his annual accounts for, and not because he needs me to do it. I just like doing it because um, it's my one chance a year to go back to Janet and John book one and go, I can do his account. Just exciting. keep your hand in with just the and that, number crunching. And that was last week. Yeah. So oh, no, you didn't. That's why I'm smiling. <laughs> <laughs> yes, unfortunately, nobody ever says, oh, no, you didn't, when you say you're in pantomime, <laughs> or oh, no, you're not. Yeah. <laughs> would you say, um, as a person, would you say that you're um, introvert or extrovert? I'm an extremely shy, introverted person and don't like being in public in any way, shape or form. So no, I'm a, uh, no. <laughs> uh, I, I am and, and, and I learn and I don't know how, but somebody once said, do you ever get nervous? And I said, somewhere along the line in the last 10 years, I seem to have lost the ability to get nervous. The only time I get nervous is if you ask me to stand on a chair because I have a fear of falling. But um, I've, I've lost that ability to actually be nervous. Yeah. Going on stage, people said, does, and I said, well, no, I just go out and there's a lovely audience. And that's, you know, absolutely brilliant. So, yeah, that's for me is 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 lovely. So, yes, give me a microphone, ask me questions and I might talk for far too long. Well, which is what we found today. Yes. <laughs> I'm joking, of course. <laughs> um, we are coming towards the end of this session and um, uh, we have kind of one final question for mm-hmm. you. Um, if you could be remembered for one thing, what would it be? All I want to be remembered for is making people smile. That's the big thing for me. I, I like to live a happy life. It doesn't always work out that way. But I like to make people smile. I like to try and say funny things. And sometimes they're funny and sometimes they're not. But I'd rather take that risk. I don't want to be rude, I, apart from 
too sunny. Um, but I, <laughs> on serious note, I don't. I, I just find it. Things come into my head, and I can't help but say them. And hopefully, I can make people smile. That's what I want to be remembered for. Absolutely brilliant. That's a lovely sentiment, really, isn't it? It is. It's a wonderful way to finish uh, this session for the Directors Hub Founder Support Club, Series One, Episode Four. Three. Three. <laughs> I knew it was for three. It's been a long day, hasn't it? It's been a long day already. <laughs> I'm realising that. Um, as we finish uh, this session, we're going to finish with our uh, usual kind of um, tagline. Um, so we will go on. Hubbub. Hub. A, a chaotic, chaotic din caused, caused by a crowd, crowd of, of people. people. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.